Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the word here this evening. As I mentioned, we're picking up in in Genesis chapter 49. Uh, We've come that far in our study. And as we make our way into this chapter here tonight, uh, we're coming now to really the final moments of Jacob, the the patriarch uh, Israel. Uh, We're coming to the moments, uh, the final moments of his life. And so it's here in this chapter that Jacob is going to begin to really share uh, his final words, and with his with his sons, with his family, and he's going to uh, bless many of his sons. He's going to speak prophetically over them. Um, he's going to give really his his final remarks here on his deathbed, and uh, as he addresses his family, as I said, he's he's going to really speak prophetically here. Um, and I say some of them he's he's kind of blessing, but. Um, in many respects, he's just sort of stating, here's, here's what's going to come. Here's what's going to happen in your life. And so it, it's not all good news for his sons. It's, it's simply truth. Uh, and these uh, are last words. These are his last words. And so they're going to be words that will be remembered. Of course, here they are recorded in Scripture. We're studying them tonight. I mean, so, so the, these are going to leave an, an imprint on these men and their families for generations to come. And so here we read in verses 1 and 2, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. So this is, this is somewhat unique in that here again, he's, he's saying, look, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, what's going to come, what's going to befall you. And uh, as I mentioned, for, for some of these men, there's, there's not the greatest news as it pertains to their family. And so this is kind of an interesting deathbed experience, right, for some of them. And they're probably going to walk away with a great sense of heaviness, not only because their, their father is, is dead, but then they're going to be thinking about, man, these, these things that are going to transpire in my life, what of them? And so uh, much attention has been given to chapter 49. I think you know, we could probably just stay here tonight, but um, we'll move through this part uh, a little bit more quickly than, than perhaps we, we could otherwise, and, and we'll make our way into that final chapter. And so, um, so Jacob has gathered them all up, and, uh, and he begins with Reuben the firstborn, and he says to Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And so it's an interesting beginning here as he starts to address his children. And, and this will be the pattern as we make our way through. And so if you would just agree with me in prayer once more. Father, now that we look to your word, we, we just ask, Lord, that you'd continue to move in our midst here tonight. Give us understanding. Uh, Lord, help us to make application in our lives to receive what you have for us here tonight. May we, Lord, treasure your word and to give it the honor that it's due here tonight as we consider it together. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So then, again, here, here Reuben's up first, and, and yes, he's the firstborn, and so he's essentially addressed as such, and, and no doubt, and many people believe that, that Reuben is, is eager to, to sort of be the first one in this, in this conversation. Uh, Reuben, it seems, has, has struggled increasingly so uh, as he's advanced in years. We can even think back to the uh, back and forth interaction with Jacob as they were considering making their way back to, to Egypt before they had learned of Joseph and the, and the foolishness that was on the display there on Reuben's part as he was sort of uh, uh, trying to convince his father to let them return to Egypt and, and uh, even suggesting that the sacrifice of his own children uh, were things to, to not go well if they went to Egypt. And so, so Reuben has just really seemed to be um, uh, kind of slipping in his ways. And, and though the firstborn, the rights and privileges that are associated with that would not be his. Uh, they would not be given to Reuben. Uh, Reuben really just didn't measure up. Jacob didn't see fit to, to bless him in this way. And, and, and really what, what comes back on Reuben at this particular point, because here he talks about he's the beginning of his strength. And, and this was a way for him to refer to him as his firstborn. He's, Jacob is saying, you were you my strength in the beginning. You're, you, you were my, my first child. There was an excitement there on the part of Jacob is he was a, a new dad, but, but over the years, as I mentioned, Reuben's behavior would become an issue, and what he had done 40 years prior to this point in the adultery that he had committed um, with, uh, uh, with one of Jacob's concubines would now come back upon him, uh, even though it doesn't seem like throughout his life Jacob had necessarily, at least as far as scripture recorded, made many mentions of this event here on his deathbed, he's bringing it back up. It's clear Jacob has not forgotten what Reuben did. And, um, and so as it then pertains to Reuben and his tribe, and, and this is the interesting thing, right? He's speaking prophetically, and so not only do we see Jacob say these things to his sons, but then as we look at the history of each tribe, we see that these things, in fact, came true. And so he says, you're unstable as water. You shall not excel. Well, uh, Reuben did not excel. Uh, the tribe of Reuben did not. No one of prominence ever came from the tribe of Reuben. They never crossed the Jordan when they were going into the promised land. Not that they couldn't have, but Reuben's tribe decided to settle on the other side of the Jordan instead of crossing over. Uh, they never supported their brethren in the way of, uh, of war or battle with the Canaanites. They never responded to the call. They, they just sort of remained this tribe that was uh, mediocre at best. And, um, and so such was then the fulfillment of prophecy. Moving on, then we come into verse, uh, verses 5 through 7, and we see Simeon and Levi, it says, our brothers, instruments of cruelty, are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now remember, I mean, this is these words, this is Jacob on his deathbed speaking to his children. And so he's, you know, here's Simeon and Levi, and he's like, Simeon and Levi are brothers, 
instruments of cruelty. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is kind of an intense moment. We're probably not too familiar with interactions quite like this, I wouldn't think. And so Simeon and Levi are indeed brothers, and they were tight, right? These are the two brothers. They get in trouble together. And, and their anger would be their downfall. If ever there was a, a, a place in Scripture, certainly there, there are many, especially within the, the, the Proverbs. But here, here as well, where we can see that, look, anger will get people into trouble. And, and Jacob's aware here that the two of them together is not a good thing. And, and the anger was, was most significantly demonstrated when they avenged their sister Dinah through their murderous attack on the Shechemites. And when we read that account, no doubt we could sympathize in some respects with Simeon and Levi that they were angry and they wanted to, to have vengeance, but they were, um, they were foolish in their approach and what they did was, was risked the safety of their entire family in that. And, and it truly was an act of anger. It was, it was vengeance and and we've considered that recently as well in our consideration of Romans 13 and 14. Um, and because of this issue then, uh, they would be scattered. So, so Jacob prophesies over them and, and says they're going to be scattered because this is best in terms of uh, keeping them out of trouble. The two of them together, bad. The two of them apart, safer. Okay, is really what this boils down to. And so Simeon would then be the smallest tribe. So historically speaking, Simeon would be the smallest tribe. And Levi, uh, you're probably familiar with that tribe, right? The, Levi, the Levites, they would not have any land at all because they became the priestly tribe. Uh, and so they didn't have any land once they entered Canaan. Now, the, the difference here for Levi, uh, though he didn't have any land, it's because of the tribe of Levi's faithfulness in the wilderness when they stood against idolatry that they would be given the opportunity to uh, be the the tribe of the priesthood. And so that's what happens with, with these two tribes. And then in verse 8, we read, in Judah. Now this is a longer description here of Judah. It's somewhat similar to what we'll see of Joseph. Jacob says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter, verse 10, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. We won't get, for the sake of time tonight, into some of the imagery here, other than to say here that, that what's spoken over Judah uh, is intended to communicate he is going to do well. He will be prosperous. And the thing is, for Judah, he did not start all that well but he certainly finished well. Judah came into his own in these latter days, especially as he advocated for and defended his brother. And of course, we know that uh, from Judah will come uh, our Messiah. And, and Judah here, it says, would be a ruler all the way until the Herods. Now this comes to its uh, initial fruition in King David. And so as Israel begins to have 
kings. Saul first, of course, is the first king, but Saul's a Benjamite. And when David comes to the throne, David is of the tribe of Judah. And from David on until the Herods, it was always from the tribe of Judah. And in the religious leaders of the, of the day, um, were very distraught, the religious leaders during the time of Jesus were very distraught because here now you have a Herod that's coming into power. And of course, they know based off of this prophecy that the scepter shall never pass from Judah, but yet they see that in fact authority is passing historically from the tribe of Judah. And so it's even said by extra-biblical texts that many of the rabbis during the time of Jesus were, were often kind of running through the streets in somewhat of a panic declaring that calamity is going to come upon uh, Jerusalem. And indeed it did not long after Jesus and his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, we know in 70 AD, destruction did come upon uh, Jerusalem. And so certainly for many that created even more anxiety and stress, what of the Messiah? What of the scepter not passing from Judah until Shiloh comes, until peace comes? You see, the, the, the religious leaders of that particular time didn't know that uh, when this when this began to happen, when, when the scepter seemingly began to pass, that the 12-year-old that was teaching in their temples was him, right? They didn't pay attention to that. They didn't see that. They didn't see that Messiah had, in fact, come. And so, truly, prophecy was fulfilled in, in Jesus, in the Messiah coming. And, and as I mentioned, not long after uh, Jesus' earthly ministry, Jerusalem was destroyed. And so this, this prophecy uh, even essentially confirms that Jesus is the Messiah, that he was the one who did come in this time as the rule began to shift. But we also know that Jesus sits on a forever throne. Right? He sits on a forever throne. And so indeed, uh, the scepter from the line of Judah will reign forever. And in verse 13 then, we read, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. And so this particular tribe would be somewhat of a port town of sorts between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Issachar, verse 14, is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. And he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. And so Issachar, it says here, is a strong donkey. It recognizes the strength of the tribe. And so they were, in fact, a people uh, large in number, a strong people. They had good land, as it, as it says here. They saw that the land was good and it was pleasant. But they were, in fact, a people who were somewhat, um, perhaps you could say, uh, lazy Maybe maybe docile would be a, a better term. Maybe maybe a little too content, uh, as it were. And uh, they were then because of their good land, and because it was kind of like, hey, there's there's not a lot of fight in these people. They were often then the targets of uh, other armies, and were eventually enslaved. And so once again, prophecy uh, fulfilled. Now the next four that we see are sons of the concubines. Verse 16, it says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. 
Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. Now, the tribe of Dan was a small tribe. They were up in the north, um, but they were a pretty fierce uh, they were pretty fierce fighters. Though they were small in number, they were uh, trusted to really defend those northern borders. And uh, here we see that they were a serpent, by the way. Now, nobody wants to, from their father on his deathbed, be called a serpent, right? Um, generally speaking, that's bad. And, uh, and so this particular prophecy has, has really fueled the belief, that, that, and many believe this, that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. And, uh, and, and as we even think about the, the, the history of this particular tribe, though they were good at protecting the northern border, they were the tribe, as, we'll, as we see in, in, in Judges, as we see in 1 Kings, they were a tribe that really allowed for much of the world maybe not the people themselves, but the influences of the world to come into Israel. They allowed idolatry into Israel. Um, and so they, they are, in fact, a, uh, a serpent or a tool of, of, of Satan in terms of the world's influence on Israel. Furthermore, they're not listed, and this may be why, they're not listed among the tribes in Revelation. We don't read of Dan in Revelation. This gives even more credence to this idea that maybe it is then this tribe from which the Antichrist comes. And I would say that the next verse, verse 18, might even confirm that for us. Of course, we don't know for sure, but I'm inclined to say, yeah, I, I, think, the, I think somebody might be on to something here with this. Because again, now you've got Dan who says, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path. He's not mentioned, uh, the tribe isn't mentioned in Revelation. Um, clearly here, the, 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 they're, they're not a good tribe in terms of their influence on Israel. And then in verse 18, Jacob says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Now, this is really interesting here because Jacob's in this process of, and, and you can maybe kind of envision it, that his family's standing around his bed and he's kind of going around the room and he, he gets to Dan and he says, and I paraphrase, Dan, you're, you're a serpent. And, and we know then the things that we do. And then instead of just continuing on, instead of continuing on in the pattern that he has so far, moving to the, moving to the next guy, moving on to Gad, here all of a sudden Jacob pauses after he references Dan. It's as if he just stops for a moment and he just kind of says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. What, what, why, why all of a sudden would he stop and say this? Well, if we really consider the translation here, here's this pause that comes after Dan, and, and, and what, he's, what he says here as he makes this statement, this word salvation, he's saying, he says, Yeshua. He says, I have waited for you, Yeshua, which can be translated, of course, Jesus and salvation. So all of a sudden, in the middle of this, he just decides to say, I have waited on Yeshua. Furthermore, where do you suppose the very first mention of salvation occurs in the Bible? Right here. This is the very first mention of salvation that we find in Scripture. Isn't that interesting? So it's, it, it, I mean, if for nothing else, you're like, boy, that's, a, that's an, an interesting time to pause and make such a declaration, right? And so again, we don't know for sure. 
but it certainly seems like the mention of Dan and the consideration, prophetically speaking, of the tribe of Dan prompts Jacob to go, Jesus, <laughs> salvation. Right? Can, I, can I get somebody to grab that door, perhaps? Thanks, Brenda. Junior hires. Tell you what. Um, so here he says, I, I've waited for your salvation, O Lord. Thank you very much, Glenda. Verse 19, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. And so Gad was a small tribe, but a tribe that regularly, differently than Reuben, supplied soldiers to help in battle. And they, they were one that, even though they were small, they could be counted on, hey, Gad's going to show up. They're going to help us out. Uh, verse 20, bread from Asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. And so uh, Asher, was a, Asher was a very wealthy tribe. They were, they were known for uh, their opulence. They were known for their wealth. Verse 21, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Some of these are, these are interesting. Now, you've got, um, oh, goodness, uh, Deborah and Barak. Who are of the uh, who are there in the tribe of Naphtali, and they achieve a, 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 an amazing victory, and and they write this. You can read it in scripture. They write this song um, that's that's very eloquent. Some say, "Look, there, there's beautiful words." I, I, that that may be. Here's what I find interesting: Naphtali. Where is Naphtali? Well, really, it's the area of Galilee. Where did Jesus conduct the majority of his teaching ministry? in that particular area. Um, that, that could be uh, some of the fulfillment there of, of, of such prophecy. Um, and then, of course, we make our way to Joseph. Now, once again, uh, you've got Judah, and then you've got Joseph, who have uh, uh, quite a bit of a, a different interaction with their father during this time. And it says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him, but his bow remained in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, and by the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors." Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. And so there's both a, a, a prophecy and somewhat of a recap here of Joseph. Joseph, of course, had already been very fruitful, so fruitful that it, it grew over the walls and it was a benefit to others, though some came against him, those being his brothers and, and others who he encountered early on in his time in Egypt. He proved to be very prosperous. But the thing with, with, with Joseph here is that uh, the prophecy over him is one that really speaks primarily of, of material things. He was one who was just truly blessed. He lived a blessed life beyond those, those early years of difficulty. And uh, it's Judah, of course, who experiences the more significant spiritual blessings. Um, but similar nonetheless, both Joseph and, and Judah. And you, just the names of God here and the faithfulness of God that we see declared in his life. Um, this is the first place that we would see God referred to as the stone of Israel as well. 
and uh, Benjamin then. Now it's interesting here as we get to Benjamin because we know Benjamin was, he was a good guy from, from what we knew and, and, and Joseph of course loved him very much, was excited to, to be reunited with him. Um, Jacob too loved him, um, but it seems as if uh, for Benjamin, and we know this once again historically, that his tribe would not necessarily uh, follow suit with the character we've come to, to recognize. As it says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. And uh, the tribe of Benjamin was in fact quite violent. They were warriors. They were those who uh, delighted in going to battle. As I mentioned earlier, Saul was a Benjamite, and we see Saul's error, errors, multiple errors um, in his own leadership. And so scripture says, verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. And then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury, we, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. And so here's this burial place that his ancestors have been buried in, and he's saying, I want to go back there. Verse 31, there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife, there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. Now, we won't spend much time here, but you know, go back a little bit and consider how did he come about? To, how is it that Jacob came to marry Leah in the first place? Wasn't by choice. Wasn't his plan. In one of those strange biblical stories, we find ourselves going, how in the world did you marry the wrong woman? Like, what exactly went down there, right? And we won't get into all of that again, but uh, uh, he got duped, right? He was unhappy. He'd worked hard, right? And all of a sudden, he's got Leah? Wait a second. He set out for Rachel, right? But uh, So then he has to continue to work, and, and, uh, and so he, he finally, you know, uh, is able to, to, to get away with the, the, the bride that he had longed for, but it wasn't apparently all that he had originally thought it would be. And, and Leah proved to be a very good wife to Jacob and um, bore him, of course, many children, uh, which we know was, was a blessing. And uh, interesting here that uh, that's where he desires to be laid to rest. And so Jacob had now died, he gave his final blessings, he made his final requests, and, uh, and he passed on, presumably, uh, on to Abraham's bosom, as Scripture refers to it. And we make our way then into chapter 50, and here in the midst of this uh, very emotional time, Joseph, verse 1 says, fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And so this is a pretty normal scene that we would expect here, that he's grieving, he's mourning over the loss of his father. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And so the physicians embalmed Israel. 
Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. So here we see that Joseph follows the Egyptian practice of embalming. This was different than what was experienced elsewhere in the then known world, and it took some time. We don't know a lot about this process. Um, clearly, forty days, it's a good chunk of time that it, 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 it took. And so they, they go through this practice of embalming and then uh, the mourning. And, and what Jacob here receives is really a mourning for a high-ranking official in Egypt or someone who was certainly a well-respected person. So because he's the father of Joseph, who's the prime minister, and Jacob himself had come to be very respected in his 17 years there in Egypt, um, he experiences the, the full honors, if you will, uh, for his, his funeral and memorial. And it says in verse 4, Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And so we start to see their hints of... Uh, where, where this is going to go in Exodus. Not that at this point uh, Joseph is a slave by any means, but up until this point, or at least from the time that he came into Pharaoh's household and began to serve him as prime minister, and, and to this point it seems as if Joseph has kind of rule of the land, as it were. We don't hear much of him needing to get permission from Pharaoh for many things, um, but here now as Jacob has passed, he has to go before him and say, look, uh, here's the commitment that I made. Can I go and fulfill this? And so Joseph seeks permission of Pharaoh to fulfill his, his father's wishes and bury him in Hebron. And Pharaoh agrees. In verse 6, he said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. This tells us this is pretty significant. You know, certainly significant was the, the, the role that Joseph played, but, but no doubt Jacob was a man who continued to have great influence. Just as he did there in Canaan, this followed into Egypt as well. And it says, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. So this is a big deal. This is a big procession. I mean, all, the, all these folks are Egyptians and uh, the house of, of, of Jacob alike are going. There's so, such great respect for Joseph and now his family too. And uh, so they go along for the journey and for the burial of Jacob. I mean, there's already been 70 days of mourning and now this is going to, I mean, this is going to continue. They're not done yet. Okay. In verse 10, then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. So now the Canaanites are looking on, and they're going, man, like, they're really sad. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a big deal here. And, uh, and so therefore its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. 
Okay, and so the Canaanites um, here they're they're watching this whole thing, this great procession and funeral, and no doubt many of them knew Jacob, knew of Jacob. Um, again, he had had influence when he was there before. And so his sons, verse 12, did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. So they complete here the burial and the final wishes of his father, and it's with his passing in the end of the time of mourning that now we're kind of brought back to something that had been going on earlier, something that no doubt had been an ongoing issue for, for many years now, this issue for Joseph's brothers and their fear and paranoia that stems from unrepentant sin. If that sounds familiar, go back a few chapters, right? And so here it is, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. To this point, Joseph's brothers, even though Joseph had earlier recognized already God's hand on this entire situation, and his desire to care for his brothers and to care for their family, they had never truly repented. We haven't seen up until this point, we've not seen his, his brothers uh, seek Joseph's forgiveness to truly say, look, we were wrong. This is the, we, we know what we did to you was wrong. And now, with dad gone, with, with, with Jacob having passed, they've become convinced, man, now he's going to get his revenge. He's coming for us now. We've had it good for a while because dad was around, but surely... And, and, and maybe, too, they've, just, they've observed this mourning for 77-plus days. There has been this ongoing um, uh, mourning over his loss, and so maybe that's contributed a little to it. Like, gosh, he's, he's in a bad way. But here's the thing. How long had they been in Egypt? 17 years. Think back to something 17 years ago in your life. Do the math for a minute. Go back. Some of you are like, I can't remember that. <laughs> I was two. <laughs> okay, well, that still proves the point, right? It's a long time. Can you imagine all those years? Now, no doubt throughout this time, these, some of these thoughts had crossed their mind, surely. Oh, man, he, he's got to be. He's got to be mad at us. He's, he's, gotta, he's coming to get me at some point. And then surely there were times of distraction. Things were okay. Maybe they sought different things to distract themselves. But all the while, lingering the back of their minds. The day is coming. The day is coming. He's going to get you. Fear and paranoia. Think of the emotional energy expended over these years. In the way, too, that it surely at times robbed them of the joy that they could experience and could have experienced. 
Now here's the unfortunate thing. Chances are there's some of you sitting here tonight that you can either one, say, yeah, I've experienced that, or maybe two, I still am. That because there's something in your life that you've just never said, man, I, it's time for me to repent of this. It's time for me to make this right. It's time for me to take this before the Lord. It's time for me to surrender this. It's time for me to take this thing that's been in darkness and bring it into light. And because I haven't, fear and paranoia often come upon me. I begin to worry. I begin to think, surely somebody's going to find out. This person, because we're not right, man, they, this is what's going to happen. They're going to do this. They're going to do this to me. This is the punishment that's going to come upon me. Whatever the case may be, this is what begins to happen. And if you've been there in your life, if you're there right now, think of the emotional energy that you often find yourself expending. Think about the, the time that you feel like, man, I lost this time. And this is, what, this is what they're going through. And so here they are, they're in this place where they've convinced themselves now that something's coming. And, and, and so what they're going to do now at this point, which is good, I mean, what, what they're beginning to do is they're going to try and head it off to, at the pass, if you will. So I don't think they immediately go about it quite the right way, but, but they're, get, they're beginning to take action. They're saying enough is enough. We can't hide anymore. Verse 16, so they sent messengers. <laughs> That's the part that I wish wasn't there. So, hey, hey, <laughs> we need you to go talk to him. Now, chances are we don't know this for sure, but probably Judah or Benjamin probably went to one of them and said, listen, if anybody can go talk to him about this right now, it's you guys. One of you guys got to go because he's going to kill us. And so they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. Now, I think that their heart is at least getting to a place where it's right. I don't, know their, I don't know their hearts, only God does, but, but it seems like right now this situation seems a little bit like, uh, I don't know, maybe two of my boys who have wronged each other. One is the offender, really, in this situation. And as a parent, we're, we're dealing with it, right? And, 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 and maybe we go, you need to apologize. And so that child then goes to the other one and says, Dad told me <laughs> that this is, you know, right? You've experienced that before. It's sort of like, are you really? Are you, are you really sorry? You know? But Dad said, if I did this, you'd do this. And what do we, what do we really want to see? Hey, I was wrong. I was wrong. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And here's the other thing, and we're going to come to this in a moment. Oftentimes in that interaction that sometimes happens in my household, the, the other one, the, the, the one who was offended, sometimes their first response is knowing, okay, now there's a softness of heart towards me. They're coming, you know, we got to make this right. And they go, it's okay. It's okay. In that moment, what we often instruct them in is we say, look, it's not okay. You don't need to tell them it's okay. He asked your forgiveness. So you can say, I forgive you. Please don't do that again, <laughs> right? You don't need to just say it's okay. And I mention that because what we see in terms of, of, of Joseph's response here shortly, I think, kind of parallels that a little bit. So here's this sort of an apology and an admission. There is an admission in this because they say, look, what, what they did was, was evil. There was a trespass there. Um, 
but because they're kind of appealing more to what dad had said. And, and, and then the response, and this is what gets them. It says, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, now wept here, in the original language, language, helps us to understand that this was a quiet weeping. This isn't the sobbing that had previously happened to Joseph when he's like wailing in the house and people are in the other room and they can hear it. This is a quiet weeping. <clears throat> this is, in my opinion, kind of a sort of a sad, soft cry, one that maybe comes from a place of, of burden or of disappointment. Why is he weeping? Is he weeping because he's thinking, finally, finally I got what I was looking for. Finally, they figured it out, and they're coming before me and giving me the justice and the honor that I've been due. And I'm just overjoyed. I don't think so. And I see many of your heads, you're saying no. He's weeping because I think he too is realizing 17 years. 17 years? You've been carrying this? I already forgave you. I already forgave you. He had already done it. I believe that he's weeping here because he's burdened over the fact that, oh, and here now we've laid our father to rest and, and through all of this time together, have you been, you've been carrying this? I already forgave you. And guys, it shouldn't be too much of a stretch for us sitting here tonight to realize in our own lives when we hang on to these things and we deal with the burden of it and, and, and the fear and the paranoia and the lack of joy, all because we've convinced ourselves that we can't bring this thing into the light and so we just continue in our own strength to try and carry the load and you better believe that you have a Savior, His name is Jesus, who's seated at the right hand of the Father in interceding for you that that is burdened for you and looking at you and saying i already forgave you i already forgave you it's all it's already done and and so this moment for these men as they now see either either they're watching and they see joseph or the report comes to them whatever it is here uh, it, it causes them to come to him. It prompts them to come to him and to bow down before him. And I absolutely believe here that, that truly repentance happens. And guys, this is no different in, in our situation that when we rightly see God for who he is, when we see rightly his character as evidenced in Scripture, when we see his love for us, that we too then can come to him and can bring these things into the light and bow down before him and say, God, I'm sorry. And know that he's forgiven us. And so in verse 18, then his brothers, they, they fell down before his face and they say, behold, we are your servants. The kindness of God leads to repentance. Right? And, and, and here's now another fulfillment of prophecy. Of course, his, his brothers bowing down before him once again. And look at what Joseph says to them. He says, do not be afraid. You see, Joseph recognizes their fear and he tells them not to be afraid. And he says perhaps one of the more profound statements that we find in Scripture. For am I in the place of God? It's a statement and a question, right? And why do I say that this is one of the more profound statements? I think in some respects we can read this and, and we can sort of say, yeah, this seems simple, Right? I mean, he's, he's saying, look, am I God? 
And that's exactly it. That's a question that I think we all need to become uh, well acquainted with. It's a necessary realization for all of us, right? Because here's, here's the thing. Joseph had from an earthly, from a fleshly perspective, he had every right to be angry. He had every right to exact judgment. He, but, but he recognizes something that all of us must recognize. He says, I'm not God. He says, I'm not God. We need to say that. Can you guys say that? Can we all say that? Say, I'm not God. Say it again. Let's say it one more time. I'm not God. You see, when you say that a few times and it really begins to sink in, what does it cause you then to do or maybe to think about some of your circumstances, some of your attitudes, some of your opinions, some of your behaviors, right? I mean, think about it. As you start to look at things in your life and you say, I'm not, I'm not God, it necessitates then also the consideration of, well, who is? It's not me. It's him. And, and, and we begin to, to learn more and, and consider more of, of who he is from his word and see that he is a sovereign God who's over all things, a God who loves us and who cares for us, and who, whose mercy uh, never fails, whose mercies are new every morning. He's a God who gives more grace. He's a God who works all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. A God who works to conform us to His image. A God who says, I began this work in you and, and I'm doing this work in you and I'll complete this work in you. And so it is a wonderful thing when we, like Joseph, can say, I'm not God. I don't need to worry about this. I can't do anything about this. And truly, how, how might we act different when we truly understand this? And, and it's this, for Joseph, it's this very perspective that allows him to say what he says next in verse 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And here to what I said a moment ago, he doesn't ignore the fact that they meant evil. Joseph doesn't say, oh, it's okay. No biggie sold me into slavery, left me for dead. <laughs> it's okay. No, he says, look, yeah, you, you guys, you guys really did a number on me, but I'm not God. I know who is. I know that he's in control. I've seen the evidence of him all over my life. And though you guys meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And yeah, to save many people alive, but even to look at his brothers and to say, and to save you guys. He doesn't ignore the fact that they meant evil, but he's able to look beyond it at what God was doing and his appreciation then for God and for God's plan. And, and that appreciation, that, that value, as it were, allowed him then to see his brothers differently. And I think that's what's required of us. We dealt with this uh, Sunday before last, and, and here it is kind of similarly again. Look, you... You may have been wronged. You may have been wronged in the past. There may be somebody that hurt you, but you have the ability, if a believer, to say, but God, I know you're taking this, and I know you're using this for good, and I know you're using this for your glory, and not just your glory, but Lord, you're changing me, and you're making me more into the individual that you created me to be. 
And as you do that work in my life, then my life is, is, is giving you more glory. My life is pointing people to you. And so, yes, Lord, this hurts. Somebody meant evil against me. But because of you, God, it can become good. And with that perspective and that appreciation and that, 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 that value for God and what He's doing, that sanctifying work in your life, we can then look at those who have wronged us and say, yeah, you meant it for evil, but I forgive you. And if we don't do that, if we don't forgive, well then, that becomes, in many respects, unrepentant sin in our own lives, and then here comes that fear and paranoia or bitterness that begins to consume us. And we see in Joseph a man who was not bitter. You've maybe heard it said, bitter or better. Those are your options. And to be able to look at that person, whoever it is, and consider what God has done and to say, you know what, he's forgiven me. And aren't the forgiven then, shouldn't they be forgiving? Right? Am I in the place of God? Is it for me to withhold that? No. What perspective we gain when we're willing to say, I'm not God. Am I in the place of God? Imagine the relationships that might be restored if we're willing to just say, I'm not God. I'm going to look at this through a different lens, a different perspective. And here's the other thing. Maybe, maybe you're on the other end. Maybe you're the one remaining in unrepentant sin and you're dealing with the fear and the paranoia that comes from that. Maybe you're the one who's offended and you know you need to make it right. Bring whatever that is into the light and be free. Don't stay there. Don't stay in that place. Don't continue to keep that burden upon you and go, I'm just going to carry it and maybe I can hide out long enough. Look at these guys. Imagine here as they're bowed before their brother, imagine the weight lifted. And, and no doubt the joy that's coming, rushing in as they, as they realize, look, we're, we're okay. And we're in right relationship. But I can't imagine that there's not an element of regret as well to say, oh, the time we lost. And so in verse 21, now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And so from Joseph here, we see an incredible demonstration of mercy, not giving them what they deserve. Moreover, grace, right? Giving them what they don't deserve. So not get mercy, not giving them what they do deserve. Forgive me if I misstated that. Not giving them what they do deserve. And grace, giving them what they don't deserve. And, and here's the thing is we see this demonstration of mercy and grace on the part of Joseph you know that our greater than Joseph does the same for us? Do you know once again that he already forgave it? He already did it. When he said, it's finished, that's what he meant. It's finished. It's done. And here's the amazing thing, guys. As, 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 as we're dealing with sin in our lives, whatever that sin may be, we don't, and this has come up a lot here recently, it's been an encouragement in my own life. It's been an encouragement in others. We don't need to fight for victory. See, Joseph's brothers went into this thinking, okay, we got to do something to accomplish this reconciliation. we got to fight for this, if you will. No, we get to fight from victory. Do you get the difference there? It's already done. We fight from a place of already having victory. We come from a place of already being forgiven. And so we can move forward then with confidence. And so then in verse 22, Joseph dwelt in Egypt. 
in his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knee. This is the author's way of saying he, he, he continued to live a fruitful life. And so he lives to be 110. He's not as old as his forefathers. Sin and death are still taking their toll on the average lifespan. Okay, it's, it's continually reduced and and Joseph said to his brothers, so now he's come to the end of his life. We don't know who all is still alive at this point. He says, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And so here now he's at the end of his life and he doesn't arrange for immediate transport. He says, look, you guys are going to go. It's going to happen. You're going to leave this place when you do. Don't forget me. Take, take my box along. <laughs> I'm not meant to stay here, no differently than his father. And so Joseph with confidence, he knows his people are going to leave and, and so this is what he holds them to. And so here we reach the end of Genesis. And isn't it interesting, how's the book of Genesis begin? In the beginning, God created. And it ends with, he was put in a coffin. Some interesting bookends, aren't they? We go from creation in the beginning to a coffin in the end. A book that begins with life and ends with death. It's kind of a sobering reminder of the state of the world, isn't it? It's interesting, I mean, really when we think of 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 the Word of God when we think of the Gospel. It begins with creation and ends with creation. New creation. So it doesn't stop here. As we come to this particular place, we, we realize, man, sins had its effect on this world. But, but in this book, in this time, God has set about to redeem His people. And, and now we're going to see as we, as we eventually make our way into Exodus, the, the continued journey of His people Israel. But it goes, it goes back to, to Genesis 12 and, and, and the call of Abraham and His setting Abraham apart and, and beginning to work out this plan of, of, of salvation that's going to carry on all the way through the end. I guess it is kind of fitting we're going to go from Genesis and jump right into Revelation. We'll consider the true bookends on this whole thing. But guys, it can't be lost on us here. The, just the, the effect that, that sin and, and death has had on this, this world that we've considered through these many chapters. And the call and the example that we have in Joseph to say, there is one who loves you, who cares for you, who has already forgiven, who has already accomplished the work, and there's nothing you need to do than just lay it at his feet. And trust that it's already finished. Amen? Thoughts, questions as we close. Just ready to go. God's good, amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks, Lord, for uh, this evening, our time together, the fellowship we enjoy because of you, Lord Jesus. It's for no other reason, or it wouldn't make sense otherwise, for us to be here and to enjoy one another's company the way we do. Consider your word. Lord, we're truly blessed and we give you praise. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had in this book, this amazing book, this book of beginnings. Lord, as we bring it to a close, we thank you that it's not the only one, that your plan of salvation continues to unfold as recorded in your scriptures. And that as we'll consider now in the weeks ahead, how you bring all of this, Lord, from creation to new creation, to that glorious promise, Lord, of what I believe is your soon return. 
the establishing of your kingdom on this earth and an ushering in of a new heaven and a new earth to follow. Lord, what a glorious promise that is. Lord, in this in-between time, Lord, may we not follow in the pattern of Joseph's brothers, carrying upon our shoulders, Lord, the burden of sin, fear, of anxiety, of paranoia. Lord, may we be willing to trust in your work of the cross, your love for us. Those things are already covered. It's already taken care of, and may we bring it before you, Lord, lay it at your feet that we could, Lord, walk in victory and walk in freedom, make much of you, Lord, not to be held down in, in chains of our own making, Lord, in whatever these last days are. Lord, running after you, making much of you, rejoicing in you, Lord, enjoying the peace, Lord, that comes, Lord, through being in right relationship with you. So, Lord, I pray that. For anyone here tonight, anyone watching, Lord, whether for first-time salvation, repentance, sins, and faith in you, or for a believer who's just sort of making their way, trudging along the baggage they need to cast off, Lord, by your Spirit, compel us to do so. Bring conviction where necessary, Lord. We love you, Lord, and praise you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. Your mercy that's new every morning, your grace, which is more than all of our sins, Lord. I give you thanks for it. We continue to trust in it. Lord, help us to be a people who abide in you and walk with you. Lord, we love you, and I pray for your blessing upon each of these here tonight, Lord, as they follow after you. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.